Will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our series, the title of which is on the screen, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. And just one other prayer request before we get into our message, and that is for this Wednesday. You've heard me say for the last few weeks that we are scheduled for the 10th this Wednesday with the City of Trenton Planning Commission about our addition to this room and the site plan. So we're seeking site plan approval this, uh, this Wednesday. Pray that all will go well with that and that they will imp- approve it, hopefully without changes. If they make changes, then the site plan has to be redrawn, and then we have to come back in no less than, than two weeks, so that delays things a bit. So be in prayer about that. Most of you, I hope, will be at the uh, Backyard Fellowship, but some of us will need to attend that meeting this coming Wednesday. I remember a commercial for a, a pay cable channel called Stars several years ago. And it showed a, a star-struck woman going on about how with that particular channel she can turn on movies and in her words, Tom Cruise is looking at me. And she's expressing something that's true for most of us. We're all flattered when we're singled out in what we perceive to be a positive way, by someone that we deem to be important, even if we have to make it up. Back when I was a computer consultant, I would find assignments through recruiters whose task it was to place people with the right skills with their clients who needed those particular skills. And I remember talking to one such recruiter who had my resume and there was often a need back in those days uh, for the particular skill set that I had, and his company often had need for uh, people who did what I did. But in that particular moment, he didn't have a position open. And so he told me about the rigorous process involved in becoming a consultant for his company, Cutler Williams, now defunct. And he was doing that to impress me with what a privilege it would be if I were to land an assignment through them. And he told me that I'd need to jump through some screening and training hoops if it's going to happen because not just anybody can work for Cutler Williams. That afternoon, he got a call from a client who needed somebody like me. He called me and asked if I could start on Monday. Well, so much for the screening and training. Those guys, those recruiters, were and are called headhunters. Some of you familiar with that? When my wife and I were first married, that's what I was doing. And our phone would ring often with these headhunters calling for people to do these assignments. And Kim said, who are these people bothering us all the time? And I said, well, they're called. And I told her the term headhunters. But a week later, I came home and I said, were there any messages? And Kim said, no, oh, yeah, one of those uh, bloodsuckers called. <laughs> which is actually not too far off if you know what they do. The truth is we're all flattered if singled out by someone we deem to be important and all the more if it's for something that's important to us. And that's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 are all about. In verse 9, notice how it starts. But you... And the way that is written in Greek, the original language of your New Testament, that adversative, that contrast is put to the very front 
to emphasize that there's a strong contrast between the people that are going to be described now in verses 9 and 10 and those who were described previously at the end of verse 8. If you were with us last week, you remember that Christ is the cornerstone of the church, but that stone the builders have rejected. And those builders are, in the immediate audience of Jesus' time, those were the religious leaders that crucified Jesus. But now Peter, by extension, is saying all of those who do not believe, all of those who do not obey the gospel are those who are rejecting the cornerstone. And that cornerstone thus has become a stumbling stone to them. And the end of verse 8 says they stumble because they disobey the message. But in contrast to them, but you... And now verses 9 and 10 are going to go on and extol the many titles and the many privileges that are ours because we are in Christ. And the question for us then is, do we deem these titles to be indeed privileges for us? As opposed to the world around us that finds its privileges in many other things that God would disapprove. The question for us is, do we find our approval, do we find our significance in those around us, in the culture, or do we find our significance in the privileges that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to see together this morning. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, as we look into Your Word, help us to deem as important what You have shown us is most important our relationship with you through Jesus Christ, and then all of the benefits that accrue to us as a result. May we see this with the eyes of faith, and may we leave here better equipped to serve you and honor you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we've inserted an outline in your program. I encourage you to take a look at that if you don't have that out already. And I say in the first point from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, that it's teaching us that believers are people of distinct privilege. Distinct privilege. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people. People of distinct privilege. And then we have four privileges in particular that are listed in verse number 9. The first of those is, as we say in your outline, that we are selected. We're people of distinct privilege because we are people who have been selected. The word chosen in verse 9 is the word from which we get our English word eclectic, one who makes choices about whatever the, the, the issue or item is. And God has clearly made choices, in this case choices of people. And so the Old Testament people of God, the, the Israelites, are known to us colloquially as the chosen people, God's chosen people. And so we have no trouble saying that, but then we come to the New Testament and we see that said of those who come to faith in Christ and suddenly we say, really, does the Bible teach that God chooses those who do that? And throughout the Bible, God has always had a chosen people. In verse 9, he says that we who have obeyed the gospel, we who have believed the gospel message are a chosen people. And just like those in the first part of your Bible... We're often called chosen people, so we now who have come to Christ in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
says, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The prophet Isaiah, in speaking to these chosen people, reminds them again, You are my chosen, speaking for God, the people I formed for myself. And now Peter, as we're going to see, just in these packed into these two verses, verses 9 and 10, alludes a number of times to these kinds of passages in the first part of your Bible, equating then the status that we have before God with His chosen people who have gone before. And so we are clearly, according to Scripture, in numerous places, first part of your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, God has selected, He has chosen a people for Himself. In, chap- in verse 2 of chapter 1, in this very book, we are reminded that we who were elect exiles, chapter 1 and verse 2, have been chosen according to the foreordination, the foreknowledge of, of God. And now again here, but you are a chosen people. And throughout Scripture, when the Bible speaks of the chosenness, the fact that God has selected a people for Himself, it emphasizes the fact that this choice of God is unconditional. Do you know what I mean when I say unconditional? That is, God did not choose you, choose me, because we met some particular conditions. The fact of the matter is, none of us could meet God's conditions. None of us, nada, zero. And so God's choice of us is without condition, unconditional. Unless we be lifted up with some kind of pride that say, well, says, well, where God's chosen. What happened to you? God must have seen something in me that impressed him. God often reminds us that though he has selected us for his purposes, that purpose is unconditional, not related to anything within us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. The foolish things and the weak things, that's speaking of you and me. In God's choosing of us. And he goes on to say, does Paul who wrote this, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And here's why. No one can boast before him. And so what are the implications of that then? In contrast to those who do not believe you, those of us who have come to Christ by believing in His person and work, you are a chosen people. Well, the implications of this unconditional selection on the part of God is that it should engender humility within us. (laughs) There was nothing for God to look at in us to be impressed. And therefore, rather than us boasting in any way, shape, or form about the benefits that we have in Christ. It should engender humility and thankfulness on our part because God has deigned to choose us for His own purposes. But here's another implication. Not only should it result in humility, it should also include the fact that there is no performance. Now hear this carefully. There was no performance on your part required for God to choose you. And there is no performance on your part required for God to keep you. There was no performance on your part required for God to choose you. You couldn't perform. 
And there is no performance on your part required for God to keep you. If, if it depended on my performance and your performance, ain't nobody being selected, right? And if it depended on your performance and my performance, ain't nobody staying selected. But it does not depend on our performance, thanks be to God. And you can illustrate this by thinking about the process by which one comes into a family. The truth is, we don't choose our family. And the truth is, our family doesn't choose us, at least biologically, unless one adopts. And if you're adopted, you still don't choose your family. The family chooses you. And if, but if they choose you as a baby, they still don't know what's going to, to happen. But think about this. If you're chosen as a child, especially as a teen, to be adopted into a family, that family has chosen you already knowing something about your baggage. Now, it's extremely rare. In fact, unfortunately, adoption is extremely all too rare. There are tens of thousands of children awaiting homes for adoption. And I just want to pause long enough to let you all know, give you a heads up, that over the next weeks and months, we are going to be emphasizing the opportunity and the privilege of adoption uh, by showing you some organizations that help with that, by showing you the need, so that our church might be moved, some families within our church might be moved to show Christian love to those who are in need of families to show them Christ and live out Christ in front of them. But this adoption process most often involves uh, a baby. And for obvious reasons, that's desirable. You can train that child in the way he or she should go. You don't have the baggage that you have to, have to deal with. But there are many, many children then, if not adopted as, as infants, who will never be brought into a family. And those in those rare instances who are willing to sacrifice and willing to do that, they are doing so, choosing that individual, knowing his or her baggage. Now hear this. All of God's adoptions come with baggage. He knows all your baggage and He chooses you anyway. Despite your baggage. And He chooses when you will come to His family often after you've acquired the baggage. Go figure. So God has made a choice of us, the Bible teaches, predestined in eternity past. But this omniscient God and this sovereign God knows everything that we will engage in and everything that we will be involved with. And when in a point, at a point in time, God allows us to hear the truth of the good news of the gospel message and His Spirit moves upon our hearts to call us out of the world and to Himself. He knows everything about us, everything that we've been through, and He calls us and adopts us anyway. Knowing we would be sinners, the Father chose us. While we were sinners, the Son died for us. And while dead in our sins the Spirit moved our hearts to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And so we are people of special privilege. And that privilege includes, according to Peter in verse 9, that we, but you are chosen. We are selected. Secondly, in your outline, 
Peter tells us. It includes the fact that we are not only selected, but we are serving. But you are a chosen people, and then he says, a royal priesthood. And again, this harkens back, as all of these allusions do, to the first part of your Bible, Exodus chapter 19. The Lord said to His people Israel, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And now here we are said to be a royal priesthood. Priests in the service of the king. In the Old Testament, God called out priests from among the people who were to represent Him in a unique way as they served before God's tabernacle. The problem was, though, that like Adam and Eve, the priests were naked and ashamed before God. And as a result, they needed His covering to minister in His presence. And so God made them garments, garments that were nothing short of royal robes. These garments gave the wearer, according to Exodus chapter 28, the, quote, dignity and honor that was necessary to stand before a holy God. And they included, among other items, that, that imaged, the, imaged the character of God, seals that were worn on the turban and said, holy to the Lord. And now in the New Testament, those who have been chosen to come to Christ, who have obeyed the gospel message, are now called a royal priesthood. Because of Christ, these garments then are available not, now get this, not just to a class of people born into the, the line of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, but now are available to everyone who comes to Christ. They're given freely, but they must be worn. And they're essential for giving glory to God. These priestly garments of Christ wrap every person of faith, every believer, everyone who believes who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so we are a serving people, but not just a serving people. It says we are a royal priesthood. People who offer sacrifices, yes, of, of our lives, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. In all that we say and all that we do and in the attitudes that we express. But we are not just a priesthood, but a royal priesthood. So we serve and we also reign. We're carrying out God's work for Him as His emissaries, as the King's emissaries in His world. The Bible teaches that one day this group of priest believers, you and me, that we are going to reign with Christ. Did you know that? And so, having been called out of the world into God, having been selected by Him, having been chosen by Him, we have this lofty title, a royal priesthood. We're selected and serving. Then Peter gives a third descriptor for our privileged position. We are set apart. Set apart. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and then you are a holy nation. And again, going back to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, Exodus 19, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and then God adds a holy nation. And Peter says now, you are a holy nation. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord had said to His people, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. And I've said here we are set apart. The reason I've said that is because the word translated holy, hagias, means that. It means set apart. And so unlike everybody else, you're different. Unlike everybody else, you have a different set of values. Unlike everybody else, you are now going to march to the beat of a different drummer. Now, most often when preachers like me, we see the word holy and the Lord says, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, verse 16 of the first chapter, quotes the book of Leviticus, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am, am holy. And so we see the word holy and then we pound on the responsibility for us to live differently. That is all absolutely true. The Bible's filled with that. But here I just want us to park on the privilege that we have in being different people. Not what we do. There are all kinds of responsibilities that go with that privilege. But just think about the privilege that God has selected you to serve Him because you are now set apart from the rest of the world. And you didn't do anything to deserve it. And I ask you, dear friend, do you see it that way? Do you see it as the grand and royal privilege that it is for us to be called out of the world and to God and to serve Him as His believer priests? And when it says in verse 9, we are a holy nation, you say, in what sense are we, people in the church, are we a nation? Certainly America is not a Christian nation. There is no Christian nation on earth. And so what does, what does that mean? Well, the word that's translated nation, we get our English word ethnicity, ethnic, from it. And it refers to a people who are bonded by common interests, background, commitments, And we are bonded together now by our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His purpose in His world. And because of that, we are different than the rest of the world, therefore holy, set apart. And we are said to be an ethne, then a nation, this grouping of individuals bonded together by this common allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And so we are people of distinct privilege. Peter tells us in verse 9, because we have been selected and because we are serving and because we are set apart. He gives us a fourth thing. He tells us in verse 9 that we are special. Special. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. And again, God had a people for Himself the Jews, his chosen people, in the first part of your Bible, Acts chapter, excuse me, Exodus chapter 19. God said to them, Out of all nations, you will be this, you will be my treasured possession. In Deuteronomy 7, he said, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, the root verb that's used in verse 9, it's translated possession. It's used by the Apostle Paul as he departed the city of Ephesus and he spoke to the church leaders there after having spent three years with them. It's a very moving account from Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. Paul speaks these words. The Bible says they were all weeping 
as Paul left because of the affection that they had developed for one another. But then he gives them this charge, and he uses the same word for possession. And here's what he says in Acts 20. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, and there's the word, he bought. That is, which he acquired, which he gained, which he paid the price for. And Paul says he bought and therefore possesses because of his own blood. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says, The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are, and here it is, God's possession to the praise of His glory. How did we become God's possession? Notice, the redemption of God's possession. And redemption means to pay a price, to buy one out of of slavery and into, into freedom. Now, with all that I've been saying here, that we are people of distinct privilege because we have been selected and we're serving and we're set apart and we're special. I mean, with all that, it seems as though I really have been saying that we're better than those outside of Christ, doesn't it? But I want you to see what else some of these passages say that have been talking about all these lofty titles, particularly from the first part of your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Notice what the Lord says after He says, You're my special possession and you're a people for my very own. It says this then, The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Well, then why did He? And then the Lord goes on to say, It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, friends, it is not that we are better. But because of Jesus Christ, we are infinitely better off. It is not that we are smarter. But because of Jesus Christ, we are infinitely wiser. It is not that we are holier in ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ, we have a righteousness which is not our own. This past week, I had the privilege to read a book that had been recommended to me some time ago. It's been on my list. You all probably have reading lists, and you're trying to get around to it. And Sometime before the Lord comes, you'll, you'll do that. So I was able to read uh, this, this book, written by a woman whose background is that uh, she was, throughout her 20s, for a full decade, involved in a a same-sex relationship. She was the head of the Women's Studies Department at Syracuse University. She was an absolute radical. And she had no zero time for Christians. She wrote an editorial in the local paper in Syracuse, denouncing Christians. And that editorial was read by a number of people, including a local pastor in Syracuse. And that pastor wrote her uh, an email. And she recounts in the book this note that he wrote. She says that, I had two piles of notes that I was receiving from people, people who loved what I said in one pile and people who absolutely hated what I said in the other pile. And I didn't know where to put this guy's note. 
because he didn't attack me. He simply challenged me and questioned me. And I thought, I don't know which pile to put it in. I'll throw it away. And so she threw it away. And she says during a six-day period, she threw it away more than once. But for some reason, she kept digging it out. And finally, she called this local pastor of a small church there in Syracuse. They had a nice conversation. And he said, you know, we ought to continue this over dinner with my wife. Would you be interested? She was. She did. Over two years, that couple faithfully represented Christ and spoke Christ to this woman. Her life has been transformed. She has come to the Lord Jesus. She is married to a pastor. She's a homeschooling mother of children, all of whom have been adopted. And here's what Rosaria Butterfield says about her conversion and about her testimony. She says, you know, it was finally the time for people to start asking me to give my testimony. And she says, I was really reluctant to give my testimony. And here's what she says as to why she was reluctant. All the testimonies I had heard up to this point were egocentric and filled with pride. Aren't I the smarty pants for choosing Christ? I made a decision for Christ. Aren't I great? I committed my life to Christ. Aren't I better than those heathens who have him? This whole line of thinking, she says, is both pervasive among evangelical Christians and absurd. My whole body recoiled against this line of thinking. She says, I'm proof of the pudding. I didn't choose Christ. Nobody chooses Christ. Christ chooses you or you're dead. And after Christ chooses you, you respond because you must, period. It's not a pretty story, she says. She calls her conversion a train wreck. (laughs) And the reason she says it was a train wreck is because she was going full speed in this direction and God, through the gospel and the Holy Spirit, was coming in the complete opposite direction and they met head on and guess who always wins? Friends, believers are people of distinct privilege. But I say in your outline as well, We are people of distinct purpose also. Distinct purpose. Verse 9, again, we are God's special possession. Now here's the purpose, though, for that. You see there's a purpose clause there. All of this stuff is true. All of these four things are true. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. Here's the purpose that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. People of distinct, then, purpose. And you see that again, first part of your Bible, Isaiah chapter 43. God says, you are my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that purpose, they may proclaim my praise. So in order for us to carry out this purpose, to declare the praises of the one who called us, we have to have been called, we have to have been saved. We have to have been rescued out of the world and to God. And thankfully, that's precisely what God has done with those of us who have come to Him through Jesus. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says very straightforwardly, God chose you to be saved. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. <laughs> and, and I'm going to be, if I were a betting man, I would put money that a good number of people here 
have never read a verse like we're going to display on the screen. You didn't know there was stuff like this in the Bible. You used to go to a church where the pastor never said anything like that. And here's the reason for that. Friends, we are called to preach the whole counsel of God, not selected passages, book by book, verse by verse, to show God's people what his character is like and how he acts in his world. And notice Acts chapter 13. When they heard this, that is the gospel, they were glad. They honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Ephesians chapter 1. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. But here is why. So that we would be to the praise of His glorious grace. That's to declare His praises. That's the purpose which He's freely given us in the one He loves. Likewise, Ephesians 1 goes on to tell us the purpose for which God has chosen, selected, and set apart and given us all of these privileges. In Him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that, what? What's the purpose? That we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And if the point has not been made, Paul, who wrote Ephesians 1, says yet again, when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. When verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2 says that God has privileged us with all of these things of selecting and setting apart and allowing us to serve and making us His special possession, when He's given us all of this, He's done so for the purpose of us declaring the praises of the One who called us out of darkness into His glorious light, when it says declare, you could summarize it this way. We have been called to advertise the goodness and greatness of God. God has saved us, rescued us for us to be living advertisements for His goodness and His greatness. And that is a Christian endeavor. Only Christians, only those who fit this category listed in chapter 9 can carry this out. But it's also a corporate endeavor. And when I say corporate, I just mean a body endeavor. It's not something that we do alone, but we do together. Harkening back to verse 5 that we saw last week. In verse number 5, Jesus is this living stone, and we now are living stones, small s, that are being built up into a spiritual house together. And so now together we advertise His excellencies. Now, by living like He called us, out of darkness and into His marvelous light, by being a vital and active part of the body that He has called us to engage in together, we do it through passionate and genuine worship, through body, prayer, and fellowship by being light in a dark world. One commentator said it this way, the primary mission of the church is to grow as a spiritual community and to declare the virtues of God. Dear friends, anyone who walks into this assembly, anyone who associates his or herself 
with this assembly in any of our gatherings or separately as we go out to proclaim, to advertise the goodness and the greatness of God in our attitudes and in our words and in our actions, anyone who comes in contact with us as believer priests ought to see a stark difference. That these are people of purpose. Something has happened to these people that has not happened as yet to me. And we're going to see in chapter 3 that if that's the case with us, there will be people who will say, tell me something about the hope that you have within you. And Peter says, be ready to give a reason for that hope. Believers are people of distinct privilege and of distinct purpose. And lastly, in your outline, of distinct position. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, in the first part of verse 10, once you were not a people, if you've done just a cursory reading through your Bible, you will have come across an Old Testament book, Hosea. And as you read the book of Hosea, you find that God's chosen people, Israel, had apostatized. They had turned their back on, on God. And as a result of that, God says, you are, and he says this, you are not my people. Now, God tells them that he, he longs to restore and he will restore, but not my people. And here, Peter is making an allusion to that once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. And throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of the fact that He desires to have a people of His very own who are in a unique position among all the peoples of the earth. Leviticus chapter 26, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to bounce through a number of these quickly just to show you that this is at the heartbeat of God to have a people who are in a unique position from all the other peoples of the earth. Jeremiah 24, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. Jeremiah 32, they will be my people and I will be their God. And then the prophet Ezekiel says similar kinds of things. Now I just want you to note that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both written in times of exile of God's people. And it's important to remember that because the people to whom Peter is writing, do you remember what he calls them back in verse 2 of chapter 1? He calls them elect, chosen exiles. And so now Peter is saying they were exiles, they were in captivity, but here was God's design for them. You are still my people and I am your, your God. And likewise, that's the case for you, even in the exile that you're involved in now, estranged from the world, though living in it. Ezekiel 11, they will follow my decrees, be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Ezekiel 14, the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves anymore with all their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the sovereign Lord. Ezekiel 37, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. Now coming to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 quotes the first part of the Bible, I will live with them, says God, and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Hebrews chapter 8. 
This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they will be my people. And then when all of history is consummated, at the end of human history, after the millennium, after the kingdom, this is the summary from Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. This has been God's design from the beginning. It cannot and it will not be thwarted. No matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, God's plan will move forward for you to be and remain His people and for Him to be and remain our God. In verse number 10, you were not a people, now you are the people of God because you have believed, because you have obeyed. And then it says, you once had not received mercy, now you have. Sometimes we use mercy and grace interchangeably. If you look at the context in which those two words are used in your New Testament, Grace is a more general term for all of the benefits that God gives us because of Jesus. Mercy has to do specifically with our sin. And God is merciful upon our sin and the effects of sin in our, in our lives. And despite our sin, God has made us His people and adopted us into His family and chosen us. And so I say with your take-home truth in your outline, believers follow Christ... But here's why. Because they belong to Christ. You see, Peter is now going to commence, beginning in verse 11. He's going to give a bunch of imperatives, a bunch of commands. But in preparing to give all those commands about this is what it means to follow Christ, he wants you to know you follow Christ because you belong to Christ. Believers follow Christ because they belong to Christ. Now, I say believers. But as we conclude, friends, we need to personalize it. Because I've just said sort of generally then in the outline, believers have these privileges. Believers have this position. Believers follow. We need to personalize it to, I follow Christ because I belong to Christ. But I couldn't say it that way in the outline because I don't know whether it is true of everyone in this room. Are you a believer in Christ so that I could say about you, You follow Christ because you belong to Christ? Or you could say of yourself, I follow Christ because I belong to Christ? Or most important, can Christ say of you, she or he follows me because she belongs to me? And that is the most important business we're going to do. As we conclude, as we bow our heads in just a moment, we thank God for His mercies to us, as we thank God for His privilege to us, for the purpose that He's given us in His world, for the marvelous position that He's placed us in as His unique people. God may be calling you and tugging at your heart right now. And now is the time for you to be rescued and to be saved, for you to become one of His people. You say, I can't. I've done too many horrible things. We already talked about that, didn't we? God knows all about that. And God has chosen you to be here right now to hear this message and for you to respond. And how do you do that? Realize you're a sinner living among sinners. You've done stuff and you've had done stuff, stuff done to you. 
recognize that Jesus is the solution to that. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you deserved. He paid the penalty for all of your sin, past, present, and future. Repent. And what it means is, Lord, I've been going my way. Now I'm going to follow you with my life. And you receive Jesus Christ by praying from your heart in your own words, Oh, Lord God, I believe Jesus died for me. I ask you to rescue me. I ask you to forgive me. I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the privileges too awesome for eternity to contain. Lord, we will sing your excellencies for eternity. We will learn more of the intricacies. We will have minds better equipped to understand. But Lord, even with our small, finite minds, and even with what you have revealed to us in your majestic word, Lord, we we marvel, we're amazed, and we thank you. Lord, we thank you that we are people of distinct privilege and of purpose and of position. We thank you that the only reason that we are such is because of your grace and mercy extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not because of us and anything that we have done or could have done. It is only because of your grace and we were made to advertise your excellencies in your world. And Lord, there are people in this room now who have never come to you, but by your divine appointment are here to hear this message. We pray, Lord God, your Holy Spirit would move on the hearts of people and draw them to yourself. And like Rosaria Butterfield, that you would take a person with a background that we would look at and we, from a human standpoint, would say it's hopeless, it can't happen. There is nothing impossible for our God. And so we ask you to change hearts in this sacred moment and draw people to yourself. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.